The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. Uh, if you have your Bible, go to Revelation, the book of Revelation. And yes, that's right, I'm, I'm preaching from Revelation tonight. So it's going uh, to be interesting. I was thinking about 2020 and, and what 2020 looked like and how it, how it affected us and kind of summarizing what 2020 looked, you know, kind of what it, what it meant in a, in a, in a sentence. And I, I thought, you know, 2020, I think I would say it was a year in crisis, like you, you kind of look back at 2020 and what we faced, it was like crisis after crisis after crisis, thing after thing after thing just kind of kept piling one on top of another all throughout the year. And it was, it was a little exhausting. And God was faithful. I, I hope he was as, you, you experienced the faithfulness of God like I did. But, but it, was, it was a daunting kind of different year, wasn't it? And I think crisis is a good word for it. And I was thinking about that um, this week, and something kind of hit me, like the Lord just kind of showed me something that, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I believe that crisis is a great accelerator. What, what, what typically happens when there's something that's kind of out of the norm, especially something that's hard and difficult like a crisis, is it's going to accelerate kind of what's already in you, <laughs> So crisis is going to, it can be an accelerator of faith, but it can also be an accelerator of fear. We, we saw that with a lot of people. Crisis can be an accelerator of growth, um, but it can also be an accelerator of, of destruction. And, and what really determines what comes out of you is what you've put in you, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's kind of what you've stored up inside of you is, is going to come out of you. And I think that we have, a, we have an opportunity to respond to crisis, and as you can look at crisis and say, oh man, this is bad, there's a crisis, but you can also look at it from a heavenly perspective and say, this is a, this is, we have the opportunity through this crisis to leverage and accelerate what God's plan is. And I believe that's what God is inviting us to. And in fact, if you go back and you look at the book of Acts, I'd encourage you, maybe this month as you're going through the 21 days of prayer and fasting, to read the book of Acts and read about the New Testament church. And one of the things you're going to discover is... The New Testament church is kind of plowing along and they're doing pretty good and, and then they start to, to face some opposition. Some crisis starts to hit. And when the crisis hit, it, it kind of forced them to have to reset and, and reevaluate and re-up and move and take the gospel to a different playing field, to different places. And it actually, listen, the crisis was a catalyst for the growth that God wanted to do. And what the enemy used for bad, what he was trying to do to stop the plan of God was actually something that if partnered with God, they were able to leverage and use for the, for the benefit of the kingdom. And I believe that the same is true for us, that what we've experienced this year in 2020, last year, we faced a lot of crisis. But I believe as we move into 2021, we can begin to leverage the crisis for the cause of Christ and make an impact and make a difference and, and reach more people and take the church and the kingdom of God to a higher playing field than it's ever been experienced before. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah. 
So, so we, what we do is we, we got to stand in faith, though. We got to dig in. We got to have some resolve in us to rise up and leverage this. And I believe if we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear what God wants to do during this crisis, it can become a divine reset, a divine reset. In fact, that's what I'm calling my message tonight is reset. I believe God wants to do a reset and, and reset and bring us to a new, a new level of what he wants to do, like he did with the New Testament church that ultimately leads to a shift in the church that starts with a shift inside of us which equals a shift in the culture that we find ourselves in. God's inviting us to a divine reset. Now, when I talk about a divine reset, I'm not saying that God's about to change like the game entirely, okay? In fact, I, I grew up, um, I was a child of the 80s. Any 80s kids in here today? I was born November 4th, 1979. So I was in the 70s for just a little bit. And I can honestly say, You've heard this joke before, probably, if you've been at New Song. It was the craziest couple months of my life. <laughs> wah, wah. But being a child of the 80s, I, I honestly think that was like the coolest decade to grow up in. There was so much cool stuff happening in the 80s. That's why they're making all these movies that are set in the 80s now. But it was a fun decade to live in. And one of the things that took place in the 80s was there was the birth of the home video game console. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it literally was a game changer. Games changed, right? And now you could have games at home. And when it really changed was in October of 1985 when the Nintendo Entertainment System hit America. And that December for Christmas, I got one. It, I think 1985 was the most epic Christmas of my life. It was awesome. I got this whole G.I. Joe setup that was really, really dope. I don't know what... Nicodemus had a good year that year. I got this... I got this sweet... <laughs> we were selling kids' tapes good that year. I got, the, I got the Nintendo. I got this sweet G.I. Joe setup. I got this Kuwahara bicycle. Anybody remember Kuwahara bicycles? Woo. You guys need to go watch Rad. I think it's on Amazon or something. Anybody know Rad, the movie? Oh, my gosh. What are we doing? So much to do. So much to do. I don't know if it's... Actually, I haven't seen it in a long time. It may be terrible. So don't hold me on that one. But anyways... It was a good Christmas, but I got my Nintendo, and I didn't even know, I was six, I didn't even know how great this was, but I got my Nintendo, and I had Super Mario Brothers, and I had Duck Hunt, and I had Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, yeah. and it was great, and uh, so one of the great things about the home console, like before this, people, before this, young people, listen, you had to go to a room at the mall, and you had to have quarters to play games, it was nuts. And there'd be some weird dude that could just dominate the game on one quarter. And so the game you may want to play, you never get to play. Just have to wait for him to die and he never dies. But now you got it at home and it's awesome and you can play whenever you want. And one of the great features of the home console was the reset button. Because you, some of you know this, you, you know the pain of it. You're playing Mario and you got to get far in the game. Like, you got to get past that seventh level. you got to get there. Seven, seven dash two. Man, we're going to beat it today. But you're playing, and in level one, you do something dumb and you die. And it's like, I reset, right? Because you know, like, I can't lose a life on level one. Or you get to level four, I think it's four dash two, where, where there's the little bridge and the turtle comes down and you can jump on him over and over again and he'll give you a bunch of one-ups. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? 
but you get there and you don't do it just right and he goes flying off it's like reset because you need those 99 lives reset now when you hit the reset it didn't like reprogram the game like it didn't totally change the game the buttons still work the same way the game is still the same game but what takes place is now you have a new opportunity to go into the game and play it you get to kind of start over in your approach to the game. And that, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a reset. Listen, I'm not saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is changing, because it's not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The message of the gospel it, it isn't changing, but what, what we have the opportunity to do is reset our hearts and our affections and our passions on God and approach what he's called us to do the right way. Maybe we've messed up. Maybe we haven't been focused the right way. Now it's time to hit the, hit the reset button. Turn to somebody beside you and say, hit the reset. We got to change the way we approach this stuff. Now, now here's the thing about the enemy, okay? The enemy is always going to try to beat God to the punch when it comes to stuff. And he's not dumb. Like he, he has a sense. He's been around a long time, the devil, and so since he's been around a long time, he has, a, he has kind of a sense of what God is doing. And a lot of what, times what you'll see the enemy do, what the devil will do, is he'll, he'll sense what God's doing and he'll try to beat God to the punch. And so what we're seeing in the world today is we're seeing this massive reset concept actually taking place in the world that we live in. In fact, um, just a couple months ago, Time Magazine put out an article. Uh, they've got the picture of it here of, a, of an article that, that was on the cover about this thing called the Great Reset. The Great Reset. And you can kind of see like they've got the guys kind of doing this construction project on the world here. And, and the idea behind this was there's this guy named Klaus Schwab who wrote a book called uh, COVID-19, The Great Reset. And his book is based on this idea that you never wa waste a crisis. That the crisis that we're dealing with in the world right now is something that we should leverage for change. So now we can go in and we can begin to change things and fix things and make the world the way we want to make it. Redesign things, reprogram things. And so they want to reset the social order. They want to reset ecology, reset economies, reset technology, national borders. They're, they're looking at resetting all of these different things. He talks about uh, a, a one digital currency, one digital, one, uh, one world government, um, healthcare passports, contact tracing, all this kind of wild stuff. And, and, and the, the reset is, the idea is that we're going to reset this world and take this big world that's divided and make it into this kind of small, one world, one system, one leader type thing. <laughs> now, lest you think that this is just some dude in a corner with a paperback that he wrote, people are behind this. Prince Charles has endorsed this. The Prime Minister of Canada, several G7 nations have gotten behind this. The World Bank is behind this. And, and let me read you a statement from this. This is a quote from Klaus Schwab. He said, this is the fourth industrial revolution, and it will lead to a fusion of our physical, digital, and biological identities. Yikes. Like, if you're not woken up, like, get woke. <laughs> this is... This is nuts. And so the world is, is kind of saying, 
with this shaking, this is our opportunity to recreate the world and do things our way in such a way that people will see and say, man, look at what we built. Kind of reminds me of the book of Genesis and a group of people that said, let us build a tower to the heavens so that they will call us great. That tower was called the Tower of Babel. And here, it gets even crazier. You ready for this? So, So what did God do to fix the problem? He confused their languages, right? Did you know an app just came out that's designed that you'll be able to speak into it and it will take your language and, and, and uh, read, what's the word I'm looking for? Translate it into the language of whoever you're wanting to talk to. And you know what they named it? Babel. It's like, hey God, you want to take away that? We'll show you. We can do this through technology. We'll change this. Crazy stuff, Right? Crazy, crazy stuff. So what I want you to see is like Satan sees the crisis and he gets it. I'm going to leverage this crisis and I'm going to pull people away from the things of God and from the kingdom of God and from what God wants to do. And you can hear all this and you can kind of go, oh boy, this is kind of scary, but it's really not. It's actually really exciting. It's not something we should shrink away from. It's actually something we should lean into because here's the thing. Remember what I said, the enemy is always trying to get ahead of God So if the enemy is sensing that a reset is happening, it's because, hello, a reset is going to happen soon. There's a day coming. Listen, Jesus is coming back. And there's going to be a a great reset that takes place. And this world is going to be turned upside down. And sin and death are going to be destroyed. And God will sit on the throne of all time. And everything will be made right. It's coming. But it ain't here yet. And in the meantime, there's still a reset that can take place. And that reset needs to take place inside of us, inside of our hearts. And I believe God wants to do this. And you know, it's interesting because in a crisis, it kind of helps us reset our focus, doesn't it? Because, you know, the, the call of God for us is to what? It's to go into the world and preach the gospel to everybody, to reach people. And, and so... You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's kind of like, I don't think we're doing a great job of that. And I think one of the reasons why we're struggling with it sometimes is because we're comfortable. Because you know when you're comfortable, you don't like getting uncomfortable. I know this very well. Because uh, Sarah likes being comfortable. And one of the things that takes place in our home, pretty much on the nightly, on the nightly kind of thing is we're in bed, and I, I may already be in bed before her, because she's got this whole routine she goes through, this woman thing. I go in, I brush my teeth, I get in bed. She's got to do all sorts of stuff. So I'll get in bed, and then she eventually gets in bed, and she just, like, I'll already be in bed, settled in. Like, I got the temperature right for me. Like, I've settled in. The sheets are where they need to be. Everything's good. She just gets in bed, and she's like, looks at me, <laughs> gives me that look. Hey, can you go get me a water? Can you, I I think I left my phone in the kitchen. Can you go grab that for me? I'm like, I'm in bed. She's like, I know, but I'm comfortable. How are you comfortable? You just got in bed. I am comfortable. (laughs) But, But here's the deal. When we're comfortable, we don't like getting uncomfortable. 2020 was kind of uncomfortable though. Like we were all a little uncomfortable. And I think what, what it 
what it did hopefully for you is it made you wake up a little bit to, okay, this is a little uncomfortable. But hopefully it also made you wake up to, we need to get a little uncomfortable. Like we need to get uncomfortable with just being the same people at church every week. That should kind of bother you. Bothers me. I want more people in this place. People are lost and dying, going to hell. That should bother you a little bit. Should make you uncomfortable. Uncomfortable enough to move based on it. We, should, we need to be uncomfortable. We need to be uncomfortable enough that we, we see people that are on the road to destruction and we're willing to get up out of our seat and move over to them and love on them and help them. We need to be uncomfortable with people coming in the church that maybe are not all the way there yet. Maybe they're lost. Maybe they're real lost. Like we need to get, we need to, we need to get comfortable with being a little uncomfortable. And I think that what God can do in, in this is he can stir something up inside of us that wakes us up to go, you know what, it's got it's to be different. I can't just be satisfied with, I'm going to come to church and I'm going to come in and I'm going to sing these songs and then I'm going to go back to my life. Yeah. Like it's got to be, this all is my life with the Lord. Yeah. It's got to shift, it's got to change. We have to be chasing after it. And, and listen, when we make the decision to say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of, God, I've gotten too familiar. I repent. Sometimes we think repenting means we just repent of the sin, but sometimes we need to repent of stuff like we're too familiar with God. We're too comfortable. We settled in. We allowed ourselves to get too passive about the fact that people are lost and going to hell. We're too indifferent. We got, we got things that are competing for our affection with God that needs to make us go, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. And you know what happens when we begin to do that? This work takes place in us. And if that work can take place in us and enough of us, it happens to us. You know what that means? Revival. That's how a revival starts. It's not some, you know, backcountry church with some dude preaching with a frothing mouth like, you're all going to hell. And people, you know, say, okay, we're going to dedicate our life to Jesus for the next month. That's not a revival. That's not revival. Revival is when people allow God and his presence to wreck them and change them. And we we chase after God and we're undone by his love and his faithfulness and his goodness to the point that it makes us re-up on the assignment that he's given us. That's, That's revival. That's awakening. That's what we're looking for. And we can get there, man, I'm telling you. God can do something incredible. We need to get engaged in the mission once again. It's time to wake up. 2020 was tiring, wasn't it? And I think some of us are kind of going into 2021 going, okay, it's going to be good, but I need a nap. <laughs> like, can we just take, after this fast is over, February is nap time. Because <laughs> I'm tired. But you know what? The, the solution is not napping it's not going to sleep it's not resting what we really need for the weariness we're facing spiritually is we need an infusion of the holy spirit his vision and his passion and his perspective for the church we need a reset a reset turn to somebody beside and say it's time to reset we need a reset and and so it starts listen here's where it starts it starts with us starts with us It it starts with us choosing to say i'm going to reset my love and my passion 
for God. That's why we, we sang the song, these songs that we're singing, stir a passion. I'm hoping tonight to help reset you to stir up a passion for loving God and, and being a church. Listen, I want to be a church that is known for people. Man, they, they say that church, people love Jesus. Those people love Jesus. If we can be known for that, oh my gosh, it's incredible what God can do. Okay, so Revelation, I'm finally getting there. Revelation chapter two. We're gonna look at, Jesus is talking to these seven churches here. This is Jesus. And he's, he's talking to them about some issues and some things that are facing them. And I'm not gonna get to all seven tonight. I'm just gonna talk about three of them. But I think what we see in these three that we're gonna examine is we're gonna see things that were causing them to struggle with their passion for God and their passion for the assignment, and really their passion for their love for, for Jesus and his call. So uh, what I want to show you is three enemies to passion, because if we're called to be passionate people, people in love with God, people that are going to reset the world, we're going to have to be passionate about this. So these are three enemies that will try to, to, to disrupt your passion, because here's the thing, I know you're excited right now, and that's great, and I, know, I believe tonight you're going to leave here with a passion, but, but as time goes on, we can move away from that. And so I want to help you to put some guards up, okay, to help you to not drift, to not fall into some problems here. So here's the first one. That's actually exactly what I'm talking about. Drift can cause us to lose passion. This first church we're going to look at, they were struggling, and part of their struggle with loving God and having a passion for him was that they had drifted. Look at this. Revelation 2, verse 1. The angel of the church of Ephesus write. These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience, and, and or persevered and had patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. So far, so good, right? Now look at verse four, nevertheless. In other words, you've been doing really good, but, but, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So, so Jesus is talking to this church, and listen, he's saying, you're doing a lot of good. A lot of good stuff is coming out of this church. You're, you're chasing after me, and you're, you're, you're holding on to the word, and you're committed to it, but you're, you're, you're drifting from your first love. You've drifted from your passion for me. And, and because you're drifting, I'm gonna have to take away your lampstand. Now, you maybe hear that right now, and you're going... That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I'm like, okay, God, take away my lampstand. I don't even know I had one. <laughs> but, the, but actually losing your lampstand is a massive problem because the lampstand represented the anointing of God. And it's the anointing of God that, uh, that, that empowers us to do the work God's called us to. In fact, a lampstand represents the anointing of God to direct you and to promote you. That's what the lampstand represents. It's the anointing. It's God's, it's God's driving advertisement on your life, on what you're doing, and it's his enablement to do what he's called you to do. That's what the lampstand represents. So, so kind of imagine it like a light. Like, remember, this is Bible times. Like a lampstand, they don't have electricity. 
So a lampstand was important. Now, when you got a light, like a lampstand in Bible times, what does it do? It illuminates you. <laughs> it illuminates what's going on, where you're at, so that you know where to go. You know the next steps to take. It gives illumination to where you are. So it, it helps guide your steps, like the Bible talks about. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a, and a light to my path. The anointing helps us to know, kind of assess where we're at as a people, where we're at as a church, and helps direct the steps that we need to take. But beyond that, it also enables us by being the power behind what we're doing. So kind of think of it like this. Like imagine that the church is like a big sailboat. And we're all on the boat. And we got assignments on the boat. You know, we're, we're pulling up the, the ropes. And we're swabbing the deck and doing all those things that you do on a boat. And, but, but what moves a sailboat is not all that work. It's the sail being lifted. And when we lift the sail... The wind powers it, and that's what moves it forward. That, that's, the, that's a picture of the anointing. We, we're doing all the things that we're called to do, and we're lifting the sail in obedience to God, and then his anointing comes and breathes into it, and that's what pushes us forward. It enables us to move ahead in what God's called us to do. But beyond that, it's also our advertising. See, a light, remember, a light, it, it shines, and, and it's kind of like a lighthouse, too. You know, when you, when you see a lighthouse and you're out in the ocean and you're in the, the, the waves and, and you're in a storm and you see that lighthouse, it lets you know there's hope ahead. If I can get there, I know that's solid ground. That's who the church is called to be. God wants to advertise us so that our church shines in such a way so that a, a world that's lost in the sea of sin and darkness and all that that's plaguing them will see what's going on in our church and go, that's where I need to get, that's where I need to go. It's God, it's God supernaturally advertising your church, putting his endorsement on you. It's, it's not just that we have to put invitations in everybody's hands, it's God puts invitations in people's hands and says, hey, go to New Song, get over there. So, so get this church. Jesus is saying to this church, hey, you're doing a lot of good, a lot of good. You're doing a lot of good work for me, but you've forgotten about me. You're not loving me. And if you don't change this, if you don't repent and fix this, I'm going to take away my lampstand. I don't want to be a church that goes through the motions. So it comes back to first love. We have to be a church that loves God and loves him well and serves him well. I, I think about this, and, and I'll say this. Maybe you're sitting here going, okay, I, I don't get it. Why, like, why would God do this? It doesn't make any sense. Like, it's still a church. Like, people can still go. And, but here's the reason why God would do this, because passionate Christians are a bad advertisement for a great God. Passionless Christians are a bad as advertisement for a great God. Like, have you, ever, have you ever, like, talked to somebody and maybe they saw the movie that you were thinking about seeing or they had the, the, they went to that restaurant that you were thinking about going to and you're like, oh, you, you went there, how, how was it? And they're like, eh, it was okay. I, none of us are, like, after that going, oh, sweet, I can't wait to go. <laughs> like, after they tell us that, it's like, well, I'm never going there. Passion, like, but when they tell us, oh man, dude, it was incredible. Like I had these ribs and they were falling off the bone or this movie was so funny. Uh, Sarah's gonna pee herself when she goes to it. It's so good, like that kind of stuff. Pray for me. I don't know, I'm sorry. But, 
But my point is, like, when someone's passionate about it, like, someone's telling you, dude, you got to go to Empire Slice Pizza. It's so good. Like, you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. I think sometimes as a church, like, and as a people, we're going, people are coming up to us, they're looking at our life, and they're going, what, what's this Jesus stuff all about? And we're like, oh, it's okay. You think people are going to line up for that? Get excited about that. People are looking for answers, and our answer is, yeah, it's okay, you know. And maybe it's just okay to you, and maybe it's okay to you because you've drifted. It's just okay because you're not doing it right anymore. God expects us to represent him well. And, and we represent a God with passion because we serve a passion, a God that's full of passion. Think about Jesus. He came to this earth. That was a passionate love move. Like to come to this world and put on skin and die on the cross for your sins, that's passionate love on display for you. And so he deserves our best. He deserves us to express that same kind of passionate love back. So, so if you find yourself tonight kind of going, you know what, I've drifted a little bit. I don't know that I'm as passionate as I was when I started with God. I think I've lost some of that first love passion. What do you do? Well, he tells us. Revelation 2, 4, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now look, here's the answer. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Remember where you started. Remember when you first fell in love with Jesus. Your first love. Just remember your first love. You remember, like, if you're married, you remember when you first, like, fell in love with your wife or your husband? I remember when I fell in love with Sarah. I was, uh, we were talking a lot and hanging out a lot. And Sarah's always been, like, this girl that you saw preach, that's, she's always been that, like, just... I am captivated by her and have always been like, she just is incredible. And I got to know her and I'm starting to get to know her. I'm just like, oh my gosh. And I remember um, we'd been talking a ton and spending a lot of time together and it was around Christmas time and I had to, we were going on a family trip, going to Dallas for like a few days of shopping. And I remember on the drive out there, it was like snowy and it was our family and another family. And I just remember, I just could not stop thinking about Sarah. I was just thinking about her like, it was just all my, my mind was, cons- I was smitten, okay? And then we get there, and you know, this is di- like, you kids nowadays, you got these phones, you can text. We couldn't text. No texting. Or if you did, you had to like do the whole push and buttons, but it was a mess. So there was no, I think I called you from a payphone, if I remember right, in the Galleria, because I just couldn't stand it anymore. But anyways, I remember I was in, I was in the hotel that first night, and I'm laying in bed, I'm just thinking, man, I wish I could smell her. <laughs> that sounds a lot creepier than it was supposed to. I wish I could smell her. <laughs> oh, man. Smitten, I was smitten. But I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about how I wish I could see her and smell her. And, and then it just hits me like, I think I'm in love. I think this is love. And, and it was, it was. I, was, I was infatuated, just totally in. And you know, when I was in that state of first love, passionate about her, no one had to come up to me and be like, hey, you should be nice to her. 
you should, you should talk to her like on the regular, you know, like every day. He had to tell me that. We were sitting on the phone breathing in the middle of the night. <sighs> you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. <sighs> Let's just breathe. <sighs> you know you did it. <laughs> it wasn't weird. It's love. It's love. But man, I was, I was so in love and you didn't have to tell me to be, you didn't have to tell me to sacrifice for her. Like I was spending money left and right. I was buying her clothes, sending them to her house in the wrong sizes. I was doing all sorts of dumb stuff. And you know, it's that way when, that's, that's one of the things about stirring up a passionate love for God is when you really stay focused on the individual of God. God is a person and loving him and you're passionate about that love for him. Something takes place in you, like your wanter changes. No one has to come to you and be like, you should read your Bible. Because you love him, you're passionate about it, you want to read your Bible. You, you, you really, you know, you need to pray, you need to, you need to spend regular time with the Lord. When I first, man, when I first came to know Jesus, like really came to know him and fell in love with him, I couldn't get enough of the word. I couldn't get enough of prayer. I wanted to hear God. I was doing crazy stuff to try to hear God because I just wanted Jesus I recognized how good he was and how he was for me. And so I was chasing after him with everything I had. But let's be real, we all drift. We all drift. And what happens is we start to institutionalize relationships. We do it in marriages and we do it with God where we start to, we start off loving the individual, but then we start to kind of build a life and then we start to kind of just do life with the person, with the stuff that surrounds us. Like, none of us fall in love, you know, because I didn't fall in love with Sarah because she had a good check, checking balance. Like, that wasn't, you know, she had a good credit score. I wasn't looking at her going, man, she's got a nice figure. I bet she can fold some laundry. <laughs> but that's kind of what we do, right? Like, we start to, we fall in love not watching, like, folding laundry and watching the price is right. We fall in love with a person, but then we institutionalize it. And we do the same thing with God. We fall in love with Jesus, and then we get into his church, and listen, the church is, is, a, is, is kind of an institution, but it's, it's the body of Christ, and we have parts to play, but if we're not careful, we start to just kind of go through the motions and build our life around the stuff, and we forget about Jesus. And that's what this church is doing. And we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful. And one of the ways you know is, is church just a weekend thing? Because if it is, then you, you're, you've drifted. It's an everyday thing. Because if you're married and you love your spouse, you don't have just one day with them for a few minutes. It's an everyday thing. So if you've drifted, you've got you to gotta pursue first love. And it's not hard. Like, I'm not telling you you've got to try to, you know, create some kind of emotion. I'm not, that's not the point. The point is you just go back. What did Jesus say? He said, remember what you did at the beginning. Just like in your marriage, if you've drifted, what did you do in the beginning? Just start doing that stuff again. Remember what you did when you first loved Jesus, when you first fell in love with him, when you first like wrecked your life and you came to know the love of God and how you approach the word and how you approach prayer and how you approach worship. Just go back there. 
and start reading the word all the time and start getting into worship and, and making this relationship with God something you pursue all the time. And when you do that, I'm telling you, all of a sudden you're gonna find this love just starts flowing out of you because what you're gonna experience is the love of God and it's contagious and it will wreck you and change you and, and, and help you to be who God's called you to be. When I fell in love with Jesus for the first time, my, my story is, you know, I grew up in church and I knew a lot about God, but I never knew God. Like, I didn't know him on a personal level. I kind of inherited my walk with God. And then there came a time in my life where I was married to Sarah. And I've got a, a pretty good job working at this youth ministry and, 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 and a, a nice office. And everything looks pretty good on the outside, but on the inside, I was a wreck. And I was struggling with pride and fear and anger. And I had a porn addiction. And my life was falling apart and I'd lost my job, and I was about to lose my marriage, and it was there that I turned to God. And that's, that's what's so amazing about God. His love for you is so amazing that even if, you're kind of, if, if he's kind of a last resort, he still will welcome you in. And when I turned to him, like really turned to him, and I remember praying the prayer. I remember saying, Lord, my way didn't work. And I quit. Like I give up. I give up, and I give, I give it all to you. No longer my will, your will. I'm giving up. I'm surrendering everything. And he came running to me with love. And this passion just began to develop within me as I experienced the love of God. And that passion began to make me want to help other people see that. And that's where New Song was born. It was born in this little house in Tulsa, me reading my Bible and praying and saying, God, I just want to help people know you. I want to help people who are struggling and lost. I want to have a church where they can come and they don't get thrown away. That's the kind of church I want to be. I was passionate. We would pray about it. I remember Sarah and I, we'd walk around our neighborhood and our little baby Gus, he was just a little guy and he'd be in the Bjorn on my chest. And we'd walk around holding his feet and we'd just pray for you. We were, we were praying for you. Praying for David. David was like 11 years old. It really was, probably. But we were praying for this. And, and my heart then was like, man, just give us anybody, God. I don't care what kind of problems, we're going to walk them through it. But then you go, you get into life, and you get into a church, and you become a pastor, and things start to grow, and systems are created, and you start growing this church, and all these people are here. And guess what? When you got a bunch of people in church, you get a lot of problems. God answered that prayer. He sent us lots of people. That, listen, you're, we're all got problems. But if you're not careful, even, even you drift, you start to look at it and go, why do all these people got so many problems? Because <laughs> you lose your heart. So it's, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. Like I've got, this is the number one fight I have to fight is passion for God, is Jesus number one, keeping him number one in everything I do, and it's the fight of your life. You'll have this the rest of your life. You gotta keep stirring the passion for God and the love of God every single day. All right, I'm gonna go to the next one now. Drift can cause us to lose passion. I spent a lot of time on that. The next couple won't be as long, so don't be afraid. Like, okay, we're just gonna be all nighter. <laughs> okay, here's the second enemy to passionate love for God. Uh, it's disappointment. And this, this is actually kind of interesting because when I was writing this message, 
this was the one I didn't have a lot of meat on the bone for. And I remember thinking yesterday as I was kind of closing up my notes for the day, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go in tomorrow morning and I'll put some more meat on this one. And then Jelani came and just preached last night that message, which was basically this idea. That disappointment will try to trip you up. And, and it'll try to keep you from the plan of God and it can pull you away from God. But let me, let me read you this. Revelation chapter 3. Verse seven, this is the church of Philadelphia. It says, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things say, he who is holy, he who is true, he who is the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So Jesus is kind of going, this is, this is the person, to, the person talking to you is, is, has got it going on. Like I can take care of stuff, okay? That's what he, he's introducing himself and he's saying, you got someone here with you that can deal with whatever it is you're facing. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. He says, for you have little strength. Now that word strength there uh, is the word dunamis and what it speaks to is the power of God. So what Jesus is saying is, I I'm with you and I'm opening doors for you, but I see that your strength is dwindling. Not your, your own strength, but your strength in me. And it's dwindling. And why is it dwindling? It goes on to say this, verse nine. It says, um, it says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to, per to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of the trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, so, so here's, what's, here's what's going on. These people are, are, are planting this church and building this church in this city called Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And I'm sure when they got the call from the Lord and it was like, you're gonna go to Philadelphia. I bet they were going, sweet. Everybody's like loving here. But they get there and it is not that at all. They've got these people, Jewish leaders, Hebrew leaders who are persecuting them and basically treating them like they are infidels. And the persecution is brutal and it's hard and it keeps coming and keeps coming. And so what's happening is they're losing their power. They're doing good, but they're losing their power. And why they're losing their power is because they're beginning to move away from God because of disappointment. They're beginning to, to see God the wrong way. And that's what disappointment does. We face disappointment. Like Jelani said last night, that stuff doesn't always go the way we want it to. And it's in those moments that we have a choice. Are we gonna run to God? Or are we gonna run from God? And what the enemy wants to do is when disappointment strikes, he wants to come to you and he wants to start whispering in your ear and letting you know God is nowhere near you. God's not for you. God's abandoned you. Because he knows if he can get you separated from God, he can separate you from the very one you need to help you to have the power you need to fulfill the assignment. And so Jesus looks to these sweet people that are trying to do the assignment but are starting to lose heart. And he says, hey, trust my timing. Trust my timing. And then he talks about how he's gonna deal with these people. Listen, sin is going to be judged. Evil is going to be dealt with. God is faithful and he's good, but he's also a just judge. And there's stuff going on in the world and it will be judged. It will be dealt with. Some of you have been hurt. You've had things happen. I'm telling you, your job is to trust God. Release it to the Lord. Forgive and allow God to be the just judge because he will judge it the best. Yeah, yeah. He'll judge it the right way. 
But we have to choose to say, you know what, I'm not going to allow the devil to put a barrier in between me and my God. I'm not going to allow anything to stop me from connecting with the one that is my source of power and help and, the, and a very present help in my time of need. Amen? Amen? So disappointment can cause you to lose, lose passion. And here's the last one. One last church we're going to look at. It's the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. Again, God just kind of introducing himself as, I got this. But look at this. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you. Everybody say vomit. <laughs> Some people say spit, but it really, that's the better word. It's, it's vomit you. That's the right interpretation. Vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, look at this, I am rich. This is what these people are saying. I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. I don't need God. And do not know that, and do not know, he's saying you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I'll explain more of that in a minute. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may, may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Okay, so in order to understand this one, you gotta understand a little bit about Laodicea. Laodicea was a happening city. Like there was a lot going on here. Um, Laodicea was known for their riches. In fact, they minted their own coins and there was a lot of wealthy people that lived in Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was a fashion center. Like they were known for uh, these black sheep. You know, we hear black sheep and we think of like bad, but this is like good. This is like not bad. This is good. It was a bad joke. Anyway, <laughs> these black sheep that were like, they had soft wool. It was shiny wool. And they would take this wool and they would make garments out of it and it was sold and it was very expensive. Um, they were a healthcare center. They were known for uh, this eye salve and, and for different medicines and medication and, and they were uh, an education center. People from all over would come to them for, for, uh, for medicine but they would also come to be trained in how to do medicine. And then they were an entertainment center. Um, they had a large coliseum and they would have these gladiator games. So, so Laodicea was like, it was a happening place. It was like where you wanted to be. A lot of good stuff was going on there. They had a lot of strong things happening. This is like the place to be. But they had this big problem. And their problem was in their source of water. They had a water problem. Now, Laodicea was kind of what was part of like a, a, a tri-city kind of setup. There was Laodicea and there was two other cities, Heropolis and Colossia. And Colossia sat at the bottom of this mountain called Mount Cadbus. And at the top of that mountain, it, nine months out of the year, it was snow-capped. And so it was known, Colossia was known for having this cold, refreshing water that flowed into their city. That was their resource. They were known for it. And then you go down the street from them a few miles, and you've got um, Heropolis. And Heropolis is known for these hot springs that people would go to. And if you're, you know, you're sore, you're not doing so good, you go get in these tubs and you relax. And I, I would have probably dug Heropolis. It would have been a cool place to go. So, so Colossia, they got cold water. Heropolis has hot water. And then you got Laodicea. And they got an issue with their water in that they don't really have water. 
they have to get their water from five miles away and it has to run down these Roman aqueducts. So here's what happens. By the time their water arrives, it's dirty and nasty and it's lukewarm. And if you tried to drink it without purifying it, it would cause you to retch and vomit. So Jesus is speaking to this church and he's giving them an analogy that they can really understand. And sometimes we interpret this as, okay, God wants me to be hot for God. And he'd rather me be just hot for him or completely away from him. Hot or cold. But that's not what it's saying. What God's saying is this, listen, I want you to be useful. Because hot is useful. And cold is useful. But lukewarm? Like no one gets excited about lukewarm. Go take a lukewarm bath. Let's go jump in a lukewarm swimming pool. Sarah actually might like that, but I don't. We want a cold pool, right? At least colder than the outside. When we go to, to order our drinks at those places where you people order your drinks from, you want a hot coffee or you want a cold coffee. No one goes up to Starbucks and says, give me a lukewarm cup of coffee. I want it as luke as it can be. Luke it up. Luke is gross. We don't want Luke. Warm. If you're named Luke, I'm sorry. We like you, Luke. We love you. <laughs> but, but Jesus is saying, you're not useful. The way, you're, the way you're doing your church and the way you're trying to do everything, it's not useful. He says this, verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. In other words, he's saying, I'm watching you, I'm seeing what you're doing, and here's what it is. You are divided. You're divided. That's, that's the, the third D that steals our passion, is we, division can cause us to lose passion. I'm not talking about fighting amongst ourselves. I'm talking about a divided heart. And that's what these guys were dealing with. They wanted it all and God. We'll throw God into all this other stuff we're doing. That's how we want to do it. The people of Laodicea, their hearts were divided. And, and so he gives them this analogy that your church is producing the same kind of product that your divided city is producing. And it's worthless. And it's wretched and it'll make people vomit. Pretty strong, Right? And what's interesting too is Jesus like hits the nail on the head. He addresses all the stuff that they hang their hats on. Look back at verse 17. Remember what I told you that they, they were so proud of. He says, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched. <laughs> Retching, right? You're wretched. You think you're rich. You think you got it all figured out. He says, miserable, poor, blind. What are they known for? A salve that helps with healing the eyes. He's saying, you're blind and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm trying to tell you, come get what I got. It's better. It's better. That you may be rich and white garments. What are they known for? Black sheep. So amazing. That you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. God's got an anointing of eye salve he wants to put on them that helps him see. And he dresses everything. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
So Jesus gives these people a metaphor they can relate to. And here's the idea. We have to go all in with the Lord, like Sarah said. A divided heart is gonna be a lukewarm life. A divided heart is gonna be a lukewarm life. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, you're not, you're not dedicated, you're divided. And that's really what this is all about. I wanna invite the, the keys to come up at this time. You know, when you, when you fall in love with somebody and you really commit to them, you dedicate yourself to them. When you get married, you say, for better or worse, in sickness and health, till death do us part. We make a commitment. I'm in, I'm all in, and nothing's stopping me. I'm choosing you, and I'm not gonna make another choice. And that's the heart we need to have for Jesus. Jesus, I choose you. And every day, I'm gonna choose you. And I'm gonna keep choosing you. And when something tries to get in between me and you, I'm gonna choose you and not it. And I'm gonna keep going after you. I'm not gonna allow my heart to be divided. You're gonna be one. Everything else will fall under you, but you're, you're number one. Jesus looks at these three churches and he says, something's changed and it ain't me. It's how you've approached the relationship. And I love how it ends. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus says, hey, maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've drifted. Maybe you've been divided. Maybe you allowed disappointment to shift you away from me. But I'm here. And I'm ready to come in. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes tonight? Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.